Good morning. It is a joy to be here. It is a homecoming for me to be here. It was 40 years ago in May that I walked across the stage at Northern State University, received my Bachelor of Science degree in secondary education. I'm sure all my professors were as stunned as, as I was to have, to have finished. Aberdeen has always been a special place for me, and it's good. It's good to be here. It's good to be with each of you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we will be in, in just a moment. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Fred MacDonald. I am, the, as uh, Scott said, I'm the executive director for the Dakota Baptist Convention. And, and folks have always wondered what that means. I was talking to someone who did not have a Baptist or even an evangelical sort of background, and they said, well, what do you do? What, what's your job? And I explained uh, my job to them, and they said, oh, so you're kind of like a bishop. I said, well, yeah, kind of, sort of. No, not anything at all like that. <laughs> we have 85 Southern Baptist churches in North and South Dakota, and Sovereign Grace is a part of that network of churches. Each one is autonomous under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and in accordance with God's Word, each church governs themselves. Yet we've just figured out there's some things we can do better together than apart. And those things that we do together, I get to help coordinate those. I have not put up with Scott for the last two years. Scott has been a real joy. And uh, he's uh, finishing up his term, I think, this year on the board. And we will, we will miss his, uh, his contribution to the board uh, when he rotates off. But uh, those things that we do together, I help co coordinate those. When pastors need a pastor or when churches need someone to come alongside of them and encourage them or, or help uh, locate resources that they might need uh, to carry out the mission that God has given to them. Uh, that's what we are here for. And so I, am, I when the person who said I'm kind of like a bishop, no, we're, we're the opposite. We, we turn things upside down. The local church is at the top of our food chain in, uh, in the Dakota Baptist Convention. And the rest of us are servants to you. I hope you found Philippians chapter 1 uh, by now. We live in an age that, uh, I guess I, I used to call it bumper, bumper snicker theology. I think today you'd have to call it hashtag or meme theology. That is the idea that everything people know about the Bible can be condensed down to this pithy little statement that they tack on a bumper sticker or on a meme uh, put with a hashtag in front of it. Things like, God is my co-pilot. Have you ever thought about that statement, God is my co-pilot? Uh, ask yourself a question next time you get ready to say that. If God's the co-pilot, who's sitting in the pilot seat? Or how about this phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm sure God is really glad to know that we're in agreement with Him on His Word, uh, but actually, if you, if you think about it, it ought to be God said it. That settles it whether we believe it or not. My believing God's word doesn't impact its truthfulness. It impacts my life, my relationship to Jesus Christ. It is imperative that I believe God's word for my own eternal uh, destiny. But God is God. He's not God because we think he is. He is. 
we've lost perspective on some significant ideas over the years. One of those is the phrase, Jesus is Lord. If you ask most believers today, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? They'll say something like, well, it means God is my boss. He's in charge. For second century Christians, though, it meant a little bit more. It meant the difference between saying Caesar is Lord and living or Jesus is Lord and dying for that declaration. Many chose to die. One of those was a bishop from Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. In the year 155 A.D., he stood before the Roman proconsul. The Roman proconsul said to him, Swear and I will release thee, curse the Christ. Here's Polycarp's response. For eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and in a little while is quenched, for you know not of the fire of the judgment to come. Why do you delay? Bring what you will. And they did. Polycarp died. He was burned at the stake for his faith and his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that each of us are sitting here is proof that none of us have yet been called upon to pay the price that Polycarp has uh, for our faith in Jesus Christ or for telling the story of Jesus. But if you have served Jesus for any length of time, you know that there are roadblocks, there are obstacles that seek to hinder us as we walk through this life faithfully to Jesus Christ. I remember the first time I tried to share the gospel with someone. It was in college. Uh, it was a fellow student. His name was Carl, and, and, and I shared the gospel with him. And, and when, when I was done, he, he listened patiently and respectfully. But when I was finished, he started to cackle like a chicken. He said, do you really believe that? That's the most stupid thing that I've ever heard in my life. I remember going back to my dorm room and just bursting into tears at my failure. I decided it's just not worth it. We come to Philippians chapter 1. The Philippians must have been wondering and asking the question, is it worth it? They grieved because they heard their dear friend and brother in Christ, Paul, was in prison. And in a tender letter, Paul challenges them to keep telling the story of Jesus. Because the hindrances to the gospel cannot quench the power of the gospel. I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read beginning in verse 12 through verse 21. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me... To live is Christ, to die is gain. You may be seated. In these verses, Paul shares three pieces of advice that I think are helpful to us today as we walk through life, as we deal with the the roadblocks, the obstacles, the, the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul shares with us is don't be just defeated by the circumstances of the gospel. Paul constantly faced barriers in his mission as he proclaimed the name of Jesus. He he faced barriers of persecution. On more than one occasion, Paul was beaten. He was stoned once, left to die. Now he was under house arrest in Rome. We sometimes think we are suffering for Jesus if someone is sitting in our seat or has taken our parking spot. I've always, I've, I've always heard jokes about that, about somebody getting upset if someone was sitting in their seat. I, when I was in high school, we had a dear, sweet lady. Uh, and, and, and Maggie loved Jesus. She was, one, she was one of the godliest ladies I ever, I ever met. And, and one Sunday, I, I, I watched as someone was, and she was very sweet about it. And she came up and she looked at the person and said, Honey, child, you're sitting in my seat. It was a first time, yeah, someone who'd never been there and didn't, didn't know that Maggie was written. You couldn't read it, but I guess it, was, it must have been written on the seat or something there. And, and uh, they got up and moved. And uh, Sometimes we think that's suffering for Jesus. <laughs> or, or if somebody uh, makes fun of something about us, uh, we, we feel like we have suffered for Jesus. Paul faced real barriers of persecution, the all of the apostles did. They they and 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 almost all of them, except for the apostle John, all of them were martyred for their faith. And John was exiled to an island of Patmos. All faced barriers of persecution. That was not new to the New Testament. You can go back to the Old Testament. And prophets like Jeremiah, Jeremiah. He, he, he warned the people. All of the, 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 the prophets, of the, the preachers of the day were saying, oh, everything's just fine. Yeah, we're going to have a few problems, but we're God's people. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Jeremiah says, sell your houses. We are going away for seven decades before we can come back. And he was mocked. He was persecuted for that. Paul faced barriers of persecution. He faced barriers of uncertainty. Uh, Do you recall the time in the book of Acts? uh, Paul had his mission team, and he had this really great idea. Let's go to Asia Minor and tell people about Jesus. They need to know about Jesus. But the Holy Spirit said to Paul, don't go to Asia Minor. Didn't tell him where he should go, just said, don't go there. (laughs) Paul said, no problem, we'll go to Bithynia. They need Jesus there in Bithynia. Spirit says, no, don't go to Bithynia. We don't know how long of a period of time it was, but eventually, 
Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. He's calling them, come, come to Macedonia and tell us about Jesus. And they were obedient to the vision. But there were times of uncertainty. Paul faced barriers of difficulty. Wayward churches. Even here in the church of uh, the church at Philippi. Uh, Philippians is one of the most tender, loving, beautiful letters that Paul wrote. But even to the church of Philippi, if you read the first couple of verses of chapter 4, he had a couple of ladies in the church that were kind of, you know, just button heads with each other. Two ladies who had worked with him in the gospel, and he loved dearly, and so he, he, he called to the leader of the church and said, help, help these two ladies to walk arm in arm for Jesus again. He had wayward churches. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. And now, now he was imprisoned for preaching the name of Jesus. Do you know what Paul learned? He describes this in the first couple of verses that we read. Paul learned that God can be glorified through the barriers that we face. Even though he was in prison, the gospel was still going forward. In fact, it's not even right to say uh, in spite of his chains, look at what Paul says in verse 12, because of his chains, because of the difficulties that he was facing, others were stepping forward. The, the unreachable were being reached. Inroads were being made into Caesar's household and guard. And you know he had, one day he, he had dreams of reaching the big guy himself standing before the, the emperor of Rome himself and saying, thus saith the Lord. Several years ago, I worked for a company that we, did, we helped churches with capital fundraising programs. and My job was to talk with pastors who were having some kind of project that they needed to raise large amounts of money for and find out what they were doing and, and eventually have one of our consultants talk with the church and, and be a help to them. And I got to know two pastors from Florida. They both had these great building plans. And, they, uh, and I had talked with them over several months, getting very close to the time where they were ready to, to be passed off to one of our consultants. And then this little storm came through. <laughs> they called it a hurricane down there. Destroyed everything. A couple weeks later, uh, I, I called both of them up. I was, I was thinking about them and I called them both up. They weren't on my call list for that day, but I, I found their numbers and I called them up. Asked how they were doing. You must be awful disappointed. One of them said, yeah, a little bit. But then he started, began to, talk, started to talk about all of the open doors. People who would not darken the door of a church were, were calling to them now, wanting to hear about hope, about a future that, that was better and opened great doors of opportunity to ministry. Friends, your barriers are God's opportunities. Are there barriers that are tempting you to stop telling the story of Jesus or maybe never start talking about Jesus in the first place? Your walls are God's windows of blessing and opportunity. Uh, Tom Elliff, who for a long time was an international missionary, IMB missionary, is pastor at First Southern Baptist in Dell City, Oklahoma, was our Southern Baptist president for a couple of years. 
and president of the IMB uh, at the end of his years of ministry. And uh, I was listening as Tom shared a story about an 80-year-old lady, dear sweet lady, who worked with children. And in the last year of her life, her, she got to where she physically could not do the things. And so she asked Pastor Tom, would you, would you put me into a, in a room near the auditorium? And whenever there's a little child that needs to know Jesus, would you bring that child to me and let me tell them about Jesus? Dr. Ella shared how in the last year of that lady's life, she won a hundred children to Jesus Christ. What looks like an opportunity, or it looks like a wall, a barrier, is God's window of opportunity. Paul, Paul refused to be defeated by his circumstances. But you know, those difficult circumstances gave rise to another hindrance. Uh, you might call them scoffers or mockers. And Paul's next challenge was don't be discouraged by the critics of the gospel. In verses 15 through 18, he describes uh, some of the problems he had with those who were, were uh, trying to discourage his, his work in the gospel. No one likes to be mocked. It causes your focus to get shifted away and, and it can drain courage. Paul had his share of critics throughout his ministry. He had a group known as Judaizers that were trying to confuse the message by adding to the law. Uh, he had been in, spent time in Galatia, and after he left, some, some scoundrels came through town and said, oh, by the way, all of you, uh, you Gentiles, did, did, I understand Paul came and told you about Jesus, a bunch of you gave your lives to Jesus. Oh, that's such good news. Uh, by the way, did Paul tell you you need to be circumcised too? No, he didn't tell you that part? Oh, that Paul, he's always forgetting something. That's McDonald's paraphrase of what happened, by the way. But, but that's in essence, they, they said, you can have Jesus as long as you have this too. Jesus plus the law. He had religious leaders who tried to stop his message out of fear. I was several years ago, I was, it was when I was down in, uh, in, uh, in Texas, and, and I was back home for uh, a vacation, and the director of missions there in the Rapids, I grew up in the Rapid City area, and, and director of missions, uh, he gave me a phone call, asked if I'd go with him. He, 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 there, there was a town in northwestern South Dakota that he wanted to start a new work at. He asked if I'd go up and just kind of walk around the town, pray and look around with him, and so we did. We spent the day up there. A month or so later, he called, he contacted me, and he said he'd received a letter from two of the pastors in town uh, from other groups that said, we've got this town covered. You Baptists don't need to come here. Paul experienced people like that. And now, as he was in prison, he had some who were trying to mock the message. This is one of the most incredible things in all of Scripture to me. They somehow thought that if they were out preaching about Jesus, it would somehow make Paul mad. They didn't know Paul very well, did they? I suppose they thought, I'm going to confess something to you. I don't know if this will cause you to have less respect for me or not, but I love, the, I love the TV show MASH. I have seen every episode so many times, and I'm not, this is not exaggeration. This is not a preacher story. This is the absolute truth. 
I can most episodes sit and speak the dialogue with the people. That's how many times I've seen it. There's one episode where, where uh, Hawkeye is accused of something, and so he's in tent arrest, and, and uh, Major Frank Burns, who is Hawkeye's nemesis, comes to him, and he stands inside the door of, of the tent, uh, the swamp, and he is making fun of the fact that, that Hawkeye can't leave. And he said, I can go in, and he steps in. I can go out, and he steps out. I can go in. I can go out. That's what freedom is, Hawkeye. And at the end of the show, the tables get turned, but I suppose that's what some of these folks were thinking about Paul. Paul's in prison. He can't go around and tell people about Jesus. Uh, we can go anywhere we want and talk about Jesus. And, and, and somehow they thought if they would preach Jesus, it would add pain to Paul's heart and soul. Paul refused to be discouraged by his critics. He glorified God that the, that the gospel was getting out. It, in essence, Paul says, so what? He said, there are people who are preaching Jesus because I can't. And some do it because they love Jesus. Some are doing it out of selfish motivation. I don't care what their reason is. Jesus is being proclaimed, and so I'm going to rejoice. He glorified God that the gospel was getting out. Because he understood, Paul understood that God had made a promise that when his word went forth, it would not return void or return empty-handed, but that it would accomplish its purpose. Don't let the scoffers and the critics keep you from serving Jesus. I, I mentioned Carl a few moments ago. We were not only students together, we were also in the same National Guard unit together here in Aberdeen, and we were both in Battalion Supply, which was in Webster. And so every drill, we would report here to Aberdeen, to the, to the guard building here, and then we would all, those of us who were in Battalion Supply, we'd get in pickup trucks, and we would drive all the way to, to Webster, South Dakota, for our weekend drill. At that time, Groton, South Dakota, had this little cafe along the side of the, of the highway. And as we would drive back from Webster, we would often stop and get a Coke or coffee, or some of the guys would get something a little more, a little harder than that. Um, and on this one particular occasion, this is about a month or two after I had tried to share the gospel with him. And we stopped at Groton on the way back, and... I asked for an orange soda, and the waitress brought me an orange soda and a mug that had a beer advertisement on it. Everybody knew I'd already surrendered to be a Baptist preacher, and I, I really didn't want people to see me drinking an orange beverage out of a beer mug. And so I very quietly said to the waitress, can I have another cup, one that doesn't have any writing on it? That's what I said. That's even louder than I said it. In fact, I said it so soft, only three people heard me. I heard me, she heard me, and he heard me. And he burst out and laughing. He says, I don't believe you did that. Shouting, I don't believe you did that. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. I believe you did that. Yep, yep, that's the one. And, and for the rest of the weekend, he made my life miserable over that. Later, 
I learned the definition of successful witnessing. I, I went back to my dorm room again and said, I, I, I am obviously not called by God to do this kind of stuff, talking about Jesus. But a little while later, we had some witness training at our church, and I learned this definition. The successful witnessing is sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That stayed with me ever since then. Satan wants to defeat your efforts to share Jesus. He wants to discourage you with critics. Don't be defeated by your circumstances. Don't be discouraged by your critics. Instead, the last piece of advice that Paul has, be driven by your champion, Jesus Christ. With all the stuff that Paul faced, a fair question to Paul would be, uh, Brother Paul, what kept you going in the face of all these barriers, in the face of this constant uh, criticism? In verses 18 through 21, Paul shares several things. The advancement of God's purposes produced joy for him. Because of his chains, despite the ill will of others, the mission was being accomplished. You have to understand, Paul understood, Paul didn't matter. Jesus did. And accomplishing the mission was what Paul was all about. The advancement of God's purposes gave him joy. Uh, in verse 19, he talks about how the, the action of God's people encouraged endurance in him. Paul had people praying for him. He said, your prayers for me strengthen me. Uh, they, they pick up where I leave off. I don't know if, if you ever studied much church history at this time. The, the Roman government and the religious leaders of the day, they, they tried to squeeze Christianity out of existence in its infancy. But the harder they squeezed, it was kind of like squeezing jello. Have you ever tried to squeeze a handful of jello? What happens? You kids don't try this at home without your mom and dad's permission, because you'll get me in trouble if you do. You get a handful of jello and you squeeze that, and what happens? It goes, it squirts out all over the place. And every time they tried to squeeze, the believers and, 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 and crush the name of Jesus, the gospel would break out over here. Somebody else would stand up over here and begin proclaiming the name of Jesus. Several years ago when I was pastoring in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota had massive flooding. Some of you may remember that that year. And one of our deacons and I and my oldest son, Josh, we, we took the back three benches out of our church van. We loaded it up with supplies and these stuffed animals that our senior adult group would make. And we drove all the way up to Grand Forks, North Dakota to, to give those to the, the people that were going through so much difficulty. As soon as we got to Grand Forks, we went to the church that we were going to stay at, and there, were, there was a group from Texas. The Texas Baptist men had already come up. They were doing disaster relief up there. And we walked through the door, and somebody said, Are you Fred McDonald? I said, Yes, I am. I said, We've been waiting for you. You need to call home right now. There's a medical emergency. And I called uh, on the phone. I thought about Denise. She was a few months pregnant at the time. 
And when I called home, a voice answered that I did not recognize. I later learned it was a lady who'd been at our church for the last couple weeks. And she got Denise on the phone, and Denise told me she had lost the baby. And my heart was just crushed. We talked for a while, and as soon as I hung up the phone, I turned around, and there, <laughs> there was the biggest guy I'd ever seen. And he just bear-hugged me and held on to me for about a minute. And when he let me go, he said, I'm Big John Lilly from Reclaw, Texas, and I'm so sorry. And I found out Big John Lilly also wrote poetry. <laughs> and he got my address, and once a month for the next year, he sent me a poem. Check on me. Help me see how I was doing, how Denise was doing. The action of God's people encouraged endurance for Paul. The adequacy of God's Spirit provided peace. That's the last part of verse 19. Paul recognized that he was not alone. Verse 20, he describes the anticipation of God's approval. Paul looked forward to hearing the words. Six words from the lips of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. About a year ago, I was at a meet. I was up in Dickinson for a meeting, and I checked into a hotel there. And a young lady named Miriam was the clerk, and and we got to talking, and she told me she was from Ghana. I said, "Well, that's really interesting." I said, "You know, I go to South Africa twice a year, and tell me about Ghana. What's it like there?" And she said, "Well, actually, I've never been there, but one of these days I plan on it." I thought about that. She was from Ghana, even though she'd never seen it. Do you understand we're not from here? We've got another home that we've never yet seen. And we've got a Father who's waiting for us. And we've got a Savior who has His arms ready to greet us and welcome us with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that anticipation gave Paul boldness. Last thing that kept Paul going was the assurance of God's exaltation. That gave him hope. He said at the last part of verse 20, With all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When he was president, Ronald Reagan had a sign on his desk. It said, there is no limit to what can be done if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. I like that. But you know, I think I'd change that just a little bit. There is no limit to what God's people can do if God gets the glory. That's what Paul was all about. He said, if I live, it's Jesus. If I die, it's Jesus. It doesn't matter. Whatever, as long as the name of Jesus Christ goes forward, as long as God is glorified, I have great hope. That's what kept Paul going. I've been asked over the years, Fred, what are some of the things that kept, kept you going over the years? I think of Doyle Blanton, 61 years old, when he received Jesus Christ. He was a construction foreman. He received Jesus Christ, got to baptize him, became a part of God's forever family. 
He was on his last job site. It's about a year later. He was on his last job site. Checking things out. He was about to retire. And the building collapsed. Doyle Blanton was killed. I got to do his wedding. They packed out the main room in the funeral home, filled up the, the, uh, the overflow room. The mayor of St. Joseph was there. Doyle was well known in the community. And I got to share what a wonderful man Doyle Blanton was and the confidence that I had that he was with Jesus now. And I said, you know what? I, I believe Doyle Blanton's with Jesus, but it's got nothing to do with what a nice guy he was. That's got nothing to do with how much people loved him. It has to do with a day when Doyle Blanton bowed his knee and gave his life to Jesus Christ. That keeps me going. I think about Billy. Billy was a teenage boy at church I pastored in Rapid City. I shared the gospel with Billy several times, and he would never give his life to Jesus. His mom was a part of our church, and she would weep over Billy. One day, he and two other friends were driving down West Chicago in Rapid City, in a pickup truck, going a lot faster than they should have been. Lost control, went over the median, head on into a truck, and all three boys were killed instantly. I did Billy's funeral. They packed out the First Baptist Church. The choir loft behind me was filled with kids wearing black Megadeth. How many remember the group Megadeth? That was a nasty, awful rock group years ago, and, and that was Billy's group, and they had all these teenagers wearing black Megadeth t-shirts. I got to the end of the message. I shared the gospel. And I said, you know, there is a mom sitting here on the front row who wants to know that there is some purpose for what's going on today. If you'll give your life to Jesus, would you come to me afterwards or give this mom a call and talk to her? I had five teenage co teenagers come to me after the service to want to talk about Jesus. Friday of that week, Billy's mom called me and said, Pastor, the phone has not stopped ringing all week long. That keeps me going. A wife forgiving her unfaithful husband at 2 o'clock in the morning. Then there was Carl. After the beer mug encounter, I called my mom. I did whatever, you know, college-age kid does when his life is collapsing around him. You know, you call mom up and she listened to me and she said, oh, don't worry about him. Guys like him think they're pretty tough, but when, when things are going bad, they know who they can turn to. I said, Mom, you have no idea what you're talking about. She was 300-some miles away in Rapid City. I could get away with saying that on the phone. I, I, Carl just thinks he knows everything. There, there's no, I, I, you know. One month later, guard drill. We're in Webster and we get our vehicles assigned to come back for the day and and I get in the pickup truck and I look behind the wheel and there's Carl. I've got to drive all the way from Webster to Aberdeen with him. And I started praying, God, just help him to keep his mouth shut. And you know, that was working pretty good. We got about halfway back to Aberdeen and for some reason we, did, we were not going to stop at Groton. We were just going to drive straight through. About halfway back, he turns to me and says, can I, can I tell you something? I wanted to say, no, you're doing just fine. Keep your mouth shut. But he knew I was going to be a preacher, and preachers aren't allowed to say things like that. So I said, sure, go ahead. Carl said, my wife left me last night. I have no idea what to do. 
I wasn't married at the time. I listened to Carl for a while, and I said, I said, Carl, I'll be honest, I have no clue what to tell you to, to tell you what to do. But can I tell you about Jesus again? <laughs> and Carl let me tell him about Jesus. He didn't give his life to the Lord that day. I have this dream in my mind that one day I'm going to get to heaven. And I'm going to see Carl. That's what keeps us going. The champion of our gospel. The work of Jesus Christ in the lives of others. Real quick, let me close with four lessons to learn from your champion. Number one, bad things happen even to the most faithful of God's servants. I know there are people out there that will tell you if you just love Jesus enough, you don't have to worry about any problems there. They'll, you know, If you get a problem, all you got to do is just Snap your finger and it's going to be gone. Paul Paul never figured that out how to snap his finger, I guess. But even to the most faithful of God's servants, bad things are going to happen. They happen for a number of reasons. One, because we live in a fallen world, we experience the work and the attack of the enemy, and our own human frailty means that we're going to go through difficult times. So don't be trapped into questioning God's love for you or your salvation. Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not condemn. He convicts of sin. Condemnation says you're hopeless. Conviction points you to Jesus, the giver of hope. Don't question your usefulness to Jesus. Second lesson. When Jesus is all you have, you have all you need. I know that's a cliche, but it is true. In John 1.14, John said that Jesus dwelt among us. The word for dwelt is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word for tabernacle. John takes a noun and he turns it into a verb. Jesus tabernacled with us. It points back to the Old Testament. It's not, uh, our English translation dwelt just really doesn't do it justice because it points back to that Old Testament when they, when they would be wandering through the wilderness and they would put the tabernacle, they'd stop somewhere and they'd set up the tabernacle and the glory of God would descend and rest upon that and, and the glory could be seen for miles around and they knew God was with them. And they looked for that glory to descend. That's the word John uses. The glory of God is among us. As long as Jesus gets the glory, everything else is okay. Live your life to hear the words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lesson number three. Jesus takes our tragedies and he turns them into triumphs. Things that look like a wall to you are a window to Jesus. Every circumstance, every chain, every critic can either destroy or develop. Uh, trust Jesus and lean on the Holy Spirit. And finally, God's people draw strength from God's people. It is true that when all you have is Jesus, you have all you need, but isn't it good to know that Jesus rarely leaves us in a situation where that's all we have? We've got each other. We have the body of Christ. While Jesus is all we need, we have the fellowship of His people. You don't have to be a Lone Ranger Christian. There's strength and fellowship. Have a partner, an accountability partner, someone who can pray with you. 
Elijah in the Old Testament thought he was the only one who loved God. Boy, did God have a surprise for him at the number that had not bowed their knee to Baal. Last thing. David Brainerd, great missionary, wrote, Oh, that I might be a flaming fire in the service of the Lord. Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me from all that is called earthly comfort. Send me even to death itself, if it be in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom. When the walls seem too high, when you feel rejection sting, even when you savor the sweet taste of victory, look to Jesus and say, my walls are your windows and keep telling the story. I will trust in God to honor His word over man's scorn and keep telling the story. And above all, I will glory in the Christ who gives the victory. Just keep telling the story.